Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. After talking through the teams that are on the Eastern Conference playoff bubble last week, I figured that this week would be the time to go over the Western Conference playoff bubble. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf. And Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great, Nick. Happy to be back on. Crazy that we're already almost halfway through the NBA season. Crazy that we're halfway through the NBA season. And as we will discuss today, we still have absolutely no idea who's going to end up as the eighth seed in the Western Conference. But we're starting to get a pretty good idea of the team that's going to end up in seventh place. And it is certainly not a team that we expected to end up in seventh place at the start of the season The Oklahoma City Thunder, instead of being a team near the bottom of the playoff picture looking to sell off veterans for whatever price they can get, they're instead pretty comfortably in the seventh spot in the West. They're well ahead of the morass of teams that are sort of fighting it out for the eighth seed. As of when we are recording this on Sunday afternoon, the Thunder are 22 and 17. Again, they are the seventh seed in the Western Conference, and... They've got to be feeling pretty good about their offseason point guard swap at this point. Yeah, and they, Chris Paul has been just incredible for him. And I, I didn't think they would be this good, but I also thought that they would be a competitive team just because of you know their roster. While it didn't necessarily make a ton of sense, they still had a lot of just really solid players on there. And Chris Paul has been awesome for him and going 11 and four in their last 15 games has been really impressive and kind of started to uh, separate themselves from this pack of mediocrity that we see in the West. Shea Gilgis Alexander is having a second straight season of massively outperforming expectations. Last year, him being a regular starter for a playoff team in the Clippers was definitely ahead of expectations for a 19 year old point guard, but he was kind of more of a fifth starter type than anything else. You know, he was someone who they sort of moved around on defense, him being 6'6 and quick enough to keep up with point guards makes him a pretty valuable defensive piece for the future. But his jump shot has come along really quickly. He's still only at 34% on the season, but he's taking about three and a half of them per game. He's scoring just under 20 points a game. And it certainly seems like him and Chris Paul work really well together, which is a bit surprising given how much they both need the ball in their hands. But if you're the Thunder, you got to be really happy that Chris Paul is sort of passing on some of his mid-range techniques to Shea Gilgis-Alexander. The big difference being that Gilgis-Alexander is 6'6 and can, you know, take it out on smaller guys whenever he has the ball in his hands, which Chris Paul is not exactly someone who's going to be beasting post-up matchups. Yeah, and if you're a Thunder fan, you have to be just ecstatic. And as an SGA fan, I'm thrilled as how this, you know, trade has worked out for them. Um, I was really worried that Chris Paul was going to, you know, be Chris Paul, essentially. And instead, he's been an awesome mentor. He's not taking the ball out of guys' hands. He's playing his role perfectly, just kind of taking the shots that the defense is giving him. And from the sound of it, he's working really well with and really hard with SGA and working on mentoring him and helping him grow as a player and really fit into this team. And it's just even more impressive when they share the floor together. Um, and just the, the, this whole Thunder season has gotten off to an awesome start and has really kind of given some weight behind Sam Presti's offseason decisions. All right, little trivia question for you. Danilo Gallinari leads the Oklahoma City Thunder in three-point attempts total and three-point attempts per game. Who is in second place? Oh, God. Um, Dennis Schroeder. Yep, Dennis Schroeder, formerly a point guard who was known for his complete lack of a shot, is second on the Thunder in three-point attempts per game, averaging a little bit over 35%. The three point guard lineups with Gilgis Alexander, Schroeder, and Chris Paul have been absolutely decimating everyone in front of them. At one point, they were something like plus 25 per 100 possessions together. And I have to admit that I was very wrong on Dennis Schroeder. After watching him in Atlanta be a way too dominant, ball-dominant point guard, I thought that he wouldn't really be able to ever fit into an NBA offense in a way that wasn't just him dribbling 74 times and chucking up bad shots. But 
he's been really good this year. And honestly, if we didn't have Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell in LA, he might be the leading candidate for sixth man of the year right now. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that you were wrong on Schroeder. I mean, he was a completely different player when he was in Atlanta. And even compared to last year and this year, he's completely changed, you know, how how he plays and he's really accepted what he's, you know, can really succeed at and help the team with. And and this this three point guard lineup has been so much fun and two hundred and fifty minutes when on the floor together. Um, they have a net rating of twenty nine, an offensive rating of one twenty seven, and a defensive rating of ninety eight. So somehow I undersold it. <laughs> wow! Right, right. It's it's incre- It's incredible what they've done. Um, they move the ball. They're free flowing offense. They can switch and guard pretty much anyone on the perimeter. It's just so much fun um, watching those three play together, and just another. Um, you know, tip of the cap to Chris Paul and his influence on this team this year. And hey, turns out Billy Donovan, not the garbage coach everyone really thought he was when Russell Westbrook was essentially di- dictating everything that had to go on there. So the Thunder were seen as a team that was pretty close to the fire sale power rankings before the season, if not at the top of the fire sale power rankings. With them now pretty comfortably in the seventh seed, It is an interesting question to wonder about whether or not they actually will make a slew of trades around the trade deadline. But if they were to make a move, I think probably the prime candidate for that would be Danilo Gallinari. He's on a $22 million expiring contract. So obviously the Thunder would have to be willing to re-sign him if they weren't going to ship him out of the trade deadline. I think the thing is that you would want to keep Gallinari if you were pushing for the playoffs, which at this point the Thunder might be. But I think that they could trade him and still remain in the 7th, 8th seed mix. And at that point, I mean, you're basically just getting future assets for someone who isn't going to be as valuable to you as he might be to a contending team. And there are a whole bunch of contending teams in the NBA that could use a 6'10 power forward who can shoot the lights out. Yeah, and if if I were the Thunder, I probably wouldn't look to trade Gallinari. I mean, he's been super important to what they've done here recently and really the season entirely. And the only thing that I would look for would be to sell really high on him. Um, And the the biggest weakness with this team is their wings. Um, So Gallinari provides a lot of help there really for them even though you know he's technically a power forward he's their best perimeter shooter um and creator out there so where at the start of the season and maybe it kind of looked like you know teams may be able to buy low on him because the thunder were expected to struggle now i think the price for him went way up and if anything i would almost kind of assume that Dennis Schroeder might be top of the uh available players for trade um in Oklahoma City but I think Gallinari is too important for him, and they already have a ton of assets um, from the Chris Paul and Paul George trades. So just trading him to get assets or trading him for the sake of trading him, um, I, I don't think would be the best move for him. And just making the playoffs with some of these young guys, I think would be way more beneficial. So I think the point you mentioned about the price going up is really sort of where the rubber meets the road on this one. If a team is willing to overpay you for Gallinari or overpay you for Dennis Schroeder, I think you make that trade. But unless you're getting a team that's paying you way too much for those guys, I think it's worth it for the Thunder to just hang on to them. Absolutely. I mean, there's no reason not to cash in those assets if someone's offering you way too much, but... On the other hand, your need to sell off on Gallinari or Schroeder is much, much lower than it was at the beginning of the season, where it's basically just like, okay, here are these useful veteran guys that might be worth something on the trade market, and there's absolutely no value for us to have them around this season because you know they might be the difference between 25 wins and 30 wins. Well, it's a completely different calculus when you're talking about it being the difference between being a low playoff seed and being on the outside looking in. A hundred percent. They're they're in the the great position of where they can make a move, but they don't have to by any means, and they're they're not desperate at all. And 
when there are plenty of other teams out there that will get desperate and if they decide to will way over offer for those guys and then the thunder can kind of reevaluate where they are at that point in the um around the trade deadline but just the way they're playing right now they're playing just such good basketball where i would imagine that idea of trading any of these guys is um pretty far down the list the Oklahoma City Thunder, as we record this on Sunday afternoon, West Coast time, are 22 and 17. The next seven teams in the Western Conference have between 14 and 17 wins. So obviously, you know, the conceit of the playoff bubble is a little bit more relevant to those teams than it is to the Thunder, who again have started to separate themselves from that pack. But Right now, as just about everybody in the NBA expected, of course, the Oklahoma City Thunder are the seventh seed. And of course, the rebuilding Memphis Grizzlies are currently the eighth seed in the Western Conference. Now, granted, the eighth seed in the Western Conference is weaker than it has been in a very long time. And the Memphis Grizzlies at 17 and 22 are percentage points above the 16 and 21 San Antonio Spurs for that eighth seed. But This was a team that was expected to be at the very bottom of the Western Conference, and instead they're still in this playoff hunt. And more than that, they've actually been much better over the past few weeks than they were at the start of the season. So this is the team on the upswing, and man, it's been impressive to watch. Yeah, and you you mentioned that this is the worst the Western Conference has been in years, and I think it's a team under 500 hasn't made the playoffs in the West since I believe 97. So this is a real opportunity for, you know, some not very good young teams to kind of overperform and, you know, get, get some playoff experience early in these guys careers. But the the John Morant, Jaron Jackson, Brandon Clark experience has just been an absolute delight. Um, I'm a Timberwolves fan. So watching Dylan Brooks, score 30 points a game has not been a delight but those other three guys are just really really special um and it's really promising for where they can go in the future and if they're doing this in their first and second years in the league um it's crazy to think how how much these guys can grow on december 7th 2019 the memphis grizzlies lost to the utah jazz to fall to six and 16 and you know they're 17 and 22 now so you can do the math they've been well over 500, 11 and 6, basically since that loss to the Jazz. And it's funny because with Zion Williamson coming back, he's obviously garnering a lot of the buzz. But I don't think it's really a hot take at this point to say that John Morant has secured the Rookie of the Year award unless there's some sort of injury down the line. I mean, he's been everything that any Memphis Grizzlies fan could have hoped for this year. He's explosive. He acts like he has absolutely no concern for his body at all as he tries to destroy people. He nearly ended Kevin Love's career. You know, the complaints, let's just say, that he's been having with his teammates and his coach, I think would have looked a lot worse if John Moran had actually been able to throw down that dunk over him a couple weeks ago. (laughs) I mean, Ja is everything that the Grizzlies could have wanted. And it's really funny that you know, this explosive up-tempo transition point guard is the guy who's going to be taking over the grit and grind Grizzlies and moving them into their next era. Yeah, and it's a complete deviation from what people think of when they think of Grizzlies basketball. But I mean, he's been an absolute delight this year with I mean, 18 points a game, almost seven assists, almost four rebounds a game. Um, he just plays with a reckless abandon that you don't really see from that position or guys his size a whole lot. Um, and it, it, it's his award to lose. And I, I hope he doesn't because if he does, then, you know, something awful will probably have happened, which none of us want. And I don't think Zion will really end up playing enough games. They're being super cautious with him, which I don't blame them for. Um, I think Morant is a really special player, but this is also, um, I, I think a pretty big indictment on how bad this last draft class is, um, at the end of the year i think kendrick nunn should be in the conversation on undrafted guy 18.7 assists brandon clark could be in the conversation looks like the steel steel of the draft uh jared culver's been playing really well recently but jaw is just miles ahead of all these guys and is by far the best player that we've seen on the nba floor in this draft so far 
The thing is that he has slowed down a bit in terms of his three-point shots, and he's still only shooting about two of them per game. But he is at least shooting about two and a half of them per game, and he's currently making about 39%. And his jump shot was really the problem coming out of college, and it was more sort of pull-up game, you know, trying to get shots for himself in the pull-up game when he can't get all the way to the rim. But that's looked much better than expected so far this season. The chemistry between him and Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. has just been wild to watch, especially the last few weeks when Jaron Jackson's been given the ultra green light as opposed to the regular green light to just bomb away from deep. Now, the funny part about this team is sort of like the Thunder. This was seen as a team that might be selling off parts come the trade deadline. And now it seems like the Grizzlies won't really be making all that many moves, but the one move that is definitely going to happen is the Andre Iguodala trade. And if they don't trade him, they're certainly going to buy him out because he literally has not been with the team all season. Doesn't seem all that likely that they're just going to let him go for nothing. But really the question becomes, can the Grizzlies get something for Iguodala that is worth it for them to make the trade instead of buying him out? And from what I've heard, it seems like they're holding pretty firm on getting a first round pick. That doesn't seem all that likely, but the Dallas Mavericks currently have the rights to, I believe it's Atlanta's second round pick, which is probably going to be the 31st overall pick. I would be surprised if the Mavericks don't at least push that pick to the Grizzlies to try and get a Godala, and I think that'd be a great fit for him as well. Yeah, and moving him obviously makes the most sense. He doesn't want to be there and whatever, that's fine. Um, I, I just, I don't get why they would buy him out, especially if they're fighting for, you know, a playoff seed. Why? I, I, I would, I think he'll end up going pretty much wherever, you know, to, or to, to whoever decides that they're willing to trade really anything for him. Um, it'll probably be trade deadline day. He gets moved and because they're going to try and milk every option and wait for teams to get desperate. But, and I, I think that Mavs fit would be a lot of fun and really nice for Dallas. Um, even like the Nuggets, the Heat, obviously the Lakers would like him. Um, but I think just assume for teams to assume that he'll be able uh, to be um, or that he'll be available on the buyout market, I think is just kind of naive. And I would, if I were one of those top contenders that could use an experienced wing. Uh, defender, I, w- I would start, you know, or I would have been already calling routinely and offering, you know, pretty much um, some picks and some salary filler. I hear that if you offer Dylan Brooks instead of Marshawn Brooks, you might be able to make that trade happen. Oh, well, the, you, 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 you know how uh, how close they are with the Brooks, so d- d- you, you really don't want to mix those up. I mean, they're basically the same player, right? <laughs> I, I, I hate Dylan Brooks, so please, please don't. I, I don't need to go off on another tangent. Well, to avoid that tangent, I will say <laughs> up front that I think you're right. I think that the Grizzlies have two and maybe even three trades sort of in their back pocket that like if it gets to February 6th at 2.59 p.m. Eastern, they have a couple of trades where they can just call up the other team and say, hey, that trade we've been thinking about for Andre, we're willing to pull the trigger on it. I think that's what's going to happen. It's going to be as late as possible in the trade deadline day, they're going to have a couple of deals that they've had on the back burner. And they're just going to be like, you know what, we got to take one of these deals. Otherwise, we're going to get nothing for him. But I think it is naive to assume that there's any chance that he'll hit the buyout market because there's got to be someone in the league who's willing to give up at least some kind of small package for Iguodala that makes it worth it for Memphis rather than just saving a couple million dollars on that buyout. Absolutely. And, and if it gets that late, and what's the point of the Grizzlies turning down a second rounder and someone they're not going to play to buy out the guy? So I'm just really, really getting anything for him, I think, is the route that they're going to go down. Um, it, I'd be kind of surprised if they ended up getting a first. I think a team would really end up being pretty desperate and overpaying for that. But l- like you said, that, that um, Hawks second round pick, which is going to be 31 32 ish um it would probably be the most tantalizing asset that they could uh get up next the san antonio spurs currently in the ninth seed but that doesn't really sort of reveal the interesting let's just say season that they've had so far 
sort of similar to the Grizzlies in one sense. The Spurs were 7-14 and on December 1st after a brutal 132-98 loss to the Detroit Pistons. And they've been 9-7 and since then, so, you know, decently over 500. Their defense has looked a little bit better during that time. Their offense is still somehow in the top 10 in the league, despite the heavy, heavy mid-range proficiency of this team. But after they'd went 7-14, and I was verging on the point of being willing to give up on the Spurs. I don't want to say I would be willing to give up on the Spurs because, I mean, they're still the Spurs. And as we've seen over the past three or four weeks, you know, they're back to playing around 500 basketball. And history would tell us that the Spurs will end up being the eighth seed just because, you know, they've made the playoffs for 22 consecutive seasons. But there are some underlying problems with this team. And the fact that they're still in the hunt for the eighth seed at all says far more about how much worse the Western Conference has been this year than in previous years. Because if this was any year during the last, you know, 22 years of that playoff streak for the Spurs, they would be well on the outside of the playoff picture. Yeah, and they, they've definitely been playing better recently, but I, I'm still a ways away from saying that they've, you know, turned it around or been good. I mean, since the start of December, half their games have been against teams under 500. Um, so I mean, they're kind of, they're starting to win, you know, the games that they should, which is, you know, a a big step in the right direction. Um, but they, they just, they're old, they're too old school still. I, I sound, it sounds weird saying that phrase, but they're just going to kind of nickel and dime you to the ace seed and death by a million mid range jumpers. It seems like they'll get there and they just have such a culture of winning where I just expect them to, continue to fight for that eight seed and do whatever they can to get there instead of trying to sell off pieces for assets. Guess how many minutes DeJounte Murray and Derek White have played together this season? Oh, I think I saw this like a month ago and it was like two minutes. So are we up to like 10 now? We're up to 23 minutes of the Spurs backcourt of the future actually playing on the court together. God, that's horrible. That's it. They're, they're two really good players. Well, Derek White's kind of struggled this year, but not playing those guys together is just a crime, and playing Bryn, Bryn Forbes and Patty Mills over those guys just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure I'll go all that far. I think that Patty Mills getting as many minutes as he has still makes a lot of sense for this team. I mean, he's by far their best three-point shooter in terms of you know high volume and high efficiency. Forbes is shooting more threes per game than Patty Mills, but he's shooting them at a worse percentage. And Patty Mills can actually dribble the ball up court, whereas Bryn Forbes kind of can't. It does astound me that Pop is playing Bryn Forbes as much as he has been this season. And I refuse to criticize Greg Popovich because it's a very easy way to look incredibly stupid incredibly quickly. But the fact that those two backcourt guys haven't played together more is a bit shocking to me. It's more than a bit shocking. It's very shocking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't mean to say that Forbes and Mills shouldn't play. I just I would have expected and I hoped for a more kind of well-rounded rotation out of out of those four guys, um, where you know they're being able to mix and match because Forbes and Mills are pretty similar players. Um, so I don't know, um, and I, I I agree. I, I guess Greg Popovich kind of knows what he's doing. He's had a bit of success over his career, so I'll, I'll defer to him, I guess, in this. I will say the one thing that has, I think, really helped them over the past few weeks is that LaMarcus Aldridge has started shooting three-pointers, and it's sort of similar to Brooke Lopez and Marcus Gasol, but even to a greater extent, because Lopez and Marcus Gasol were guys who had good mid-range jumpers, but were you know mostly post-up kind of players. LaMarcus has always operated out of the post, but he's also always been, you know, a jump shooter post fadeaway type of post player. So him shooting beyond the three point line as opposed to two steps inside the three point line and him just standing out there to clear up a little bit more space for the Spurs is, I think, going to be huge for them going forward. And honestly, that's also a way that LaMarcus can stick around the league a few more years if he becomes that kind of three point jump shooter. And, you know, if DeMar DeRozan is just never going to be someone who can be proficient from beyond the arc, you've got to at least have one of those two guys standing out there. And 
Lamarcus is arguably more helpful to your offense behind the arc than DeRozan is, and he certainly has the shooting touch. He always has. Yeah, and it's crazy that it took Aldridge this long to realize that if he takes just one step back, he gets an extra point. Um, he's always been a really nice shooter from that deep mid-range, and in his last seven games, he's shooting over five threes a game, which is really encouraging for you know, the Spurs offensive development and diversity and just his ability to kind of prolong his career and add another weapon to his pretty well-rounded um, offensive arsenal. Um, DeRozan is just, I've kind of given up all hope that he's ever going to realize what he can do from the three-point line. Um, and just looking back on his last year in Toronto, where he finally started shooting threes, I just, I, I really want to know how they were able to get him to do that and why he just completely stopped. I mean, uh, the, when Ben Simmons shot his first three earlier this year, it had been almost a full calendar year since DeMar DeRozan had shot one. So I don't know why he's so scared of it because he has, he's another one of these guys that has a really nice mid-range jumper. And just by taking a step back, um, he, he could get an extra point and I, I would assume still be pretty proficient from there. I think the difference, though, is that DeMar is at least willing to shoot mid-range jumpers, whereas Simmons just isn't willing to shoot anything outside of five feet. And so, yes, DeMar does put a cramp on the Spurs spacing because he is unwilling to space it behind the arc, but at least he's spacing it to 18 feet as opposed to having two guys on the same spot on the block like you pretty consistently do in Philadelphia. No, absolutely. Just... Ben Simmons is, you know, th just the knock on him is just that he doesn't have a jumper and he's essentially a center and all that. Whereas DeMar DeRozan, you know, we've seen him shoot, you know, over three or three or four times per game from three in the past. And he's a shooting guard. And just the fact that he's so opposed and almost he looks scared of shooting a three at this point is just weird for someone from that position. Someone who is not afraid of shooting pretty much any shot ever in any situation is Lonnie Walker. <laughs> and Lonnie Walker had an incredible summer league this year after not really playing all that much last year. He has also continued to not play all that much this year. And this number, I think, upsets me even more than the DeJounte Murray, Derek White minutes together number. Lonnie Walker has played 346 minutes so far this season. Marco Bellinelli has played 503 minutes so far this season. There is absolutely no reason other than Marco Bellinelli having a ridiculous amount of blackmail on the entire Popovich family for Marco Bellinelli to play any minutes over Lonnie Walker ever in any situation. Walker is a far more important future piece to the Spurs. And even if he were not a far more important future piece, he's much better than Marco Bellinelli right now. Bellinelli is one of, if not the worst shooting guard defenders in basketball. He's shooting 35% from the floor and 34% from deep, whereas Walker is shooting 46% from the floor and 38% from deep and not playing brilliant defense, but, you know, he's a young wing player. It's not exactly expected for him to be a wing stopper. And he's still a whole lot better than Marco Bellinelli on that end of the floor. So, Bellinelli family, if there's something that I don't know about Marco that's forcing the Spurs to play him this many minutes, I apologize and please don't hurt me, but I just don't get this at all in any way. Well, I, I really hope that one of these days we can get your honest opinion on Bellinelli, but uh, I, I guess we can save that for another day. Um, I mean, I, I guess it's, I, I have no idea why Bellinelli Bellinelli's playing more. Um, I like Lonnie Walker. I like him coming out um, of college. I think he's a, a pretty versatile player. Um, I guess my biggest guess on why he uh, is failing to win that role um, is just he's still pretty inconsistent from game to game. And Popovich seems like a coach that prefers and relies on consistency and knowing what he's going to get out there instead of guys that can be lottery ticket-esque um like we saw it Lonnie in that in that Houston Rockets game um I mean 
I, I don't love single game plus minus, but it's tough when, you know, you go from minus 17 in one game to plus 29 the very next night. So that would be my biggest guess is that Walker just still hasn't been that consistent game to or night in, night out producer that uh that, that Popovich is looking for. Yeah, you're right. Bellinelli is very consistent in that he's very consistently terrible. So I can <laughs> understand wanting to play him over Lonnie Walker. Well yeah, but you know he's gonna be bad so you can plan for it. There you go. We figured it out. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I, as you can tell. <laughs> Moving on to number ten, the Portland Trailblazers who've had Really a cursed season so far in terms of injuries just across the board. Zach Collins was expected to be the starting power forward for the year and starting power forward of the future, and he injured his shoulder three games into the season. Rodney Hood was probably their best wing player during the early portion of the season. He tore his left Achilles in mid-December. He's out for the year. Obviously, Yusuf Nurkic is still recovering from the leg fracture that he suffered last year. There's still no timetable for his return. The original idea was shortly after the All-Star break. Either way, he's clearly going to miss the vast majority of the season. And it left the Trailblazers in a place where not only was signing Carmelo Anthony a move that made sense, but actually a move that dramatically improved their weakest position Carmelo has started all 25 games that he's played at power forward. And given what the Blazers have as their power forward depth behind him, it honestly makes sense that he's playing 32 minutes a game after having been signed off the street. But his alternatives there are Scalabissier, who's helpful in small minutes, but has not really lived up to the promise that he had as the number two recruit in his high school class. And then the guys behind Scal are Anthony Tolliver, who appears to have absolutely lost the plot as an NBA player, and Mario Hazonia, who has improved his shooting to get to 39% from the floor after he was hovering in the low 30s for most of the season. And given that he isn't really helpful at anything other than putting the ball in the basket and occasionally getting rebounds, having 39% be a dramatic improvement from the floor is pretty sad. Yeah, their their big man and wing rotation is just brutal. Um, I mean, if Collins doesn't get hurt, this whole thing probably probably looks pretty different. Um, I'm really really high on Collins and think he's a really good player and going to be in this league for a very long time. Um, and Whiteside has been actually kind of solid for them. Um, I think Whiteside Whiteside is generally trash see here's the thing though with Whiteside is that some games he plays like a top 10 center and everybody's like oh wow this is exactly the guy that Portland needed right and other times he's such a dramatic liability on the floor that you might actually be better off playing Tolliver or Scalabissier up a position and there's absolutely no way to tell between game to game or even quarter to quarter which version of Hassan Whiteside you're going to get. I mean, you talk about Lonnie Walker being inconsistent. Hassan Whiteside might genuinely be the most inconsistent player in the NBA. No, that, that that's entirely fair, and I get that. But compared to what he was in Miami, he seems to be less of a disaster. Well, let's say compared to what he's been in Miami the last three years, right? Compared to what he's been in Miami right. after signing the max contract. Right, right. So I mean, when I say he's been solid for them, I guess solid is doing a lot of work there. Um, he's been not, you know, I I would much rather have Nurkic, let's put it that way. So for the sake of Portland Trailblazers basketball um, and how fun they are to watch, I would much rather, or I really hope that Nurkic can come back soon. Um, but just the, the decisions that they made this offseason and letting Aminu walk and getting rid of Harkless. They made pretty much every wrong decision in the forward and wing spots on their roster that they could. Um, It's just brutal. And there really isn't a move out there that they could make without giving up way too much or completely mortgaging their future. Well, that leads us directly into our next question, which is, it seems to me like the Trailblazers are one of the teams that's going to have the most difficult time making decisions come trade deadline time. So at the moment, they're in the 10th spot at 16 and 24. So three losses back of the Spurs, who are percentage points behind the Grizzlies in eighth right now. 
the Trailblazers do have two players in Hassan Whiteside and Kent Bazemore that have pretty large expiring contracts, which those are the kind of pieces that are very much made for win now sorts of trades, you know, trade out those expiring contracts for, you know, just as a random example of someone who, I don't know, maybe Portland is interested in, and maybe there are reports that Portland is interested in him, but you know, Kevin Love has a much longer term contract than Hassan Whiteside, but only 30 million a year as opposed to 27.9, which is, I believe, Whiteside's number for this year. You can make that swap work pretty well. It's just that that's very much a move to try and win now versus, you know, paying that salary for love three years from now is not going to be as good as having all of that cap space available. I don't think he's going to be worth $33 million three years from now. So if you're Portland, you're close enough to the playoffs that you might want to make a win now trade. And after making the Western Conference Finals last year, even if you could argue that that was a bit fluky, you don't want to be out of the playoffs entirely the next season. On the other hand, if you're trading Bazemore or Hassan Whiteside for a longer term contract, you know, you are sacrificing future flexibility. And that doesn't matter as much when Damian Lillard is in his age 29 season and CJ McCollum is in his age 28 season. But if you're really focused on making the playoffs, you're probably going to have to eat some long term money to get a more valuable contributor at the moment. Yeah, I, I don't think it makes sense for them to make a move at this point to just barely sneak into the playoffs and then get slaughtered by the Lakers or Clippers or Nuggets or whoever's in the one seed. Um, they're, they're just not a good team this year. Um, and a lot of it's due to injuries. So I mean, when you say you don't want to go from missing or from being in the conference finals to completely missing the playoffs, I get that. But they have a legit excuse of injuries just really decimating, you know, half their roster or half their starters. So I think just standing pat, clearing a lot of the salary from your books and then trying to entice guys to come play with two all NBA type guards, um, I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it sucks to miss the playoffs when you have a star that's been used to carrying this team there. But for the long term success of this team and, you know, the health of that player, I think it makes a lot more sense to just try and fight in with what you got, keep guys healthy and run it back next year with a, a healthy roster without Whiteside and Bazemore and use that money to try and sign some wing shooters and defenders that can actually help this team like they've had in the past. The other thing about Portland is that for the last three or four years, they pretty consistently made a strong run in late January, early February, sort of around that time of the year, once the team started to coalesce. So if they make that kind of run again this year, they could easily compete for the eighth seed with, you know, what they've got. And if that run comes before the all-star break and Nurkic comes back after the all-star break and is, you know, something in the range of 60 to 70% of what he was last season, they might be able to make the playoffs pretty comfortably, even if they do stand pat. Yeah, and all, all they really, all they need to do, I and mean, when you look at the records and the standings, if they go on a three, four game win streak here, they're automatically up to the eight seed, pretty much. So, and it's not going to take a whole lot um, to to stay competitive and maybe sneak in. But when you look at the top of the West compared to where they would be if they, you know, made an all out trade for this year. Um, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. Um, if they were, you know, the five, six seed and just that piece away from challenging for the one or two, then that would make a lot more sense to me and be a completely different conversation, but to just sneak into the playoffs and get decimated while taking on a bunch of long-term money for a guy who's kind of sucked this year and been a complete a-hole on his team. Um, I, I, I would refrain from doing that so the portland trailblazers are currently 16 and 24 and sit in the 10th seed but there are two teams that are tied for 11th right now that are percentage points behind them at 15 and 23 
And then the 13th seed is at 15 and 24. And the 14th seed is at 14 and 26. So when you're talking about the playoff bubble in the West, you kind of do have to go all the way down to 14. But let's start at the top of that list of teams that I just ran off with your Minnesota Timberwolves, who have had, let's just say, an interesting season so far. No, it's been awful. They started pretty hot, 10 and 8, had that terrible losing streak, lost Cat, lost Wiggins, and now they've sort of clawed their way back in the last few games, but they've been relying a lot on, let's just say, G League players due to injury. Yeah, and there have been so many G League guys that have gotten called up where um, guys like Keelan Martin and Nas Reed are, you know, they're close to reaching their max of 45 days with the team. Um, it's been brutal with how many injuries and, you know, deaths in the family and illnesses that this team has faced. And they've played some of the best basketball this year and then looked like the worst team on the face of the earth the next night. Um, and since December 14th, um, they've had the best defensive rating in the league. Uh, when you add in that blowout loss to Houston last night, they, they fall into second, but and the last month they've been playing really well defensively, which is good to see. And a lot of that is because of Covington kind of taking charge. Um, Gorgie Jang has actually been solid and living up to some of that contract. And Jared Culver's just looks more and more comfortable every game. But th- th- this is just such a flawed roster where there there just isn't any outside shooting on this team. Um, Travion Graham is awful. Uh, Jeff Teague, just please leave. Um, Noah Vonley's not good. Jordan Bell can barely get minutes. So and th- there's there's no shooting on this team. Uh, the wing defenders are pretty inconsistent. But the last month, the overall team defense has been a lot better. And they've been playing a lot harder than they were the couple weeks before that. So hopefully Cat should be coming back soon which should inject a ton of offense back into their roster. So if they can kind of keep up that defensive effort and and their defense will fall off some with Cat coming back, but if, hopefully it doesn't dramatically fall off. And if it doesn't, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they snuck into the eighth seed, but I would imagine that they probably come up just a little bit short. Another team that started the season red hot and has fallen off in recent weeks, but hasn't exactly had the same kind of recovery over the last couple of weeks that the Timberwolves have experienced. The Phoenix Suns looked like they'd really turned a corner early in the year. And since then, it's been pretty tough times. But to be entirely honest, it does still amaze me how much of a difference Ricky Rubio has made. Just having a competent point guard alongside Devin Booker makes such a dramatic difference. And I was expecting it to be a little bit different, but I don't think I was expecting it to really revitalize Devin Booker's game in the way that it has. I mean, he looked much better starting last season, sort of as a proto point guard with the ball in his hands. But having another creator alongside him has just opened up his playmaking game even more so far this year. And he's looked a lot better driving to the basket as well. It's just astounding how much of a difference Ricky Rubio has made for Devin Booker's game. I, I loved that acquisition when they made it. Um, I thought how they went about doing it with getting rid of TJ Warren and whatnot um, wasn't done perfectly. But the just a- the, the the sole act of adding Rubio, who's a good defender, a good playmaker, you know, can control the offense, I thought made a lot of sense and was was really was going to be really good for Devin Booker's career. I like that he's able to work more off ball and kind of run through screens and spot up more while still being able to initiate the offense when it makes sense. Um, just taking the ball out of his hands and not having or not forcing him to initiate the offense on every possession. Um, it, it just saves a lot of energy for him and allows him to exert more on defense and he's still not a good defender but he's at least trying on defense and it gives him more energy later in the game and just kind of helps more well-round his overall offensive game so I, I i think that move was really really important for the continued uh progression for booker the 
front court situation for the Suns is interesting just in the sense that early in the season, following DeAndre Ayton's suspension, they were playing really well with Aaron Baines as the starting center. And given that they drafted DeAndre Ayton with the number one overall pick to be their starting center of the future, that's a little bit awkward for them. Let's just put it that way. They've been trying some lineups recently with the two of them playing together. And through the first six games, they were about even with that starting front court. But I don't think that matchup honestly makes all that much sense long term. And really the reason that the Suns were succeeding with Baines in Aiton's place to start the season was because... Baines was being a really solid defensive center who was making a whole bunch of three-pointers. And then he got hurt, missed a few games, and has not looked the same since. But given that the success of the Suns was built around them playing a way that centered, not centered, but had a defensive-minded three-point shooting center as the guy in the middle, it's going to be a bit difficult to adjust to that with DeAndre Ayton as the guy in the middle. And even weirder to adjust to that if... DeAndre Ayton is actually just going to be a power forward going forward, which doesn't make all that much sense to me. So going back to Ayton's days in Arizona, um, they would frequently play him with another big man, and he never looked comfortable um, in, in those situations. He didn't know where to position himself. Um, they struggled with spacing. They struggled with interior defense. And then when Aiton would be the only big man on the floor, he looked so much more comfortable and his his numbers skyrocketed. And, you know, in those situations, he looked like, you know, a potential number one pick. And when the other big was on there, he looked like a late lottery pick at best. So I think that's kind of carrying over here to the NBA and the situation with Baines. Um, Aiton just, he doesn't look comfortable with that other big man on the floor with him. He needs to be able to control the paint and kind of just control that area of the floor. And when he's not allowed to do that or has to share it, he looks uncomfortable and out of place and unsure of what his exact role is. So I, I like having Baines on that roster, but for the sake of Aiden's development and overall team success, I think playing them both together doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And instead pairing um, Aiden with a more t- traditional stretch four um, or essentially just an extra wing out there would make a lot more sense and really help his overall impact on the team up next the 15 and 24 sacramento kings this was supposed to be a hopeful season one where after last year as the ninth seed that fell just barely under 500 they would take another leap forward and be a team that really competed for the eighth seed in the playoffs i have made it pretty clear on numerous podcasts and articles and tweets and basically any form of communication possible that I was not a fan of exchanging Dave Yeager for Luke Walton as the head coach. (laughs) So I won't talk any more about that because it will just be a long and frustrating rant that will not be worth anyone's time. Let's just say that of the teams that are in this eight to 14 mix, I think the two that I am most confident will miss the playoffs are the Suns and the Kings. But Since I don't want to turn all of this into a bitter revival of the worst parts of this Sacramento Kings season, what are your thoughts on what you've seen from the Kings this year? Um, They've been interesting. Um, Sorry, and I still love Darren Fox. I think he's a ton of fun. Um, I like the pairing of him and Buddy Heald a lot. I'm fascinated to see what they're going to do with Bogdanovich. Um, But a trade for him and Kuzma is ludicrous and people who keep saying that that's fair need to watch a single NBA game and they'll realize that Bogdanovich is a much superior player. So seeing if they move off of him or sign him um, this offseason, I I think is really fascinating for this team going forward. Um, I I really have not liked what they've done with their big men at all. Um, It just doesn't seem congruous with how they want to build the team. They just kind of see them all over the place with the types of players they're bringing into that spot. Um, there's some talent there, just none of it seems to fit with how they want to play. 
I was so happy when this team signed Dwayne Dedman in the offseason. I thought he was going to be a picture-perfect fit with Marvin Bagley as a seven-footer who's a solid three-point shooter and a really good rim protector. And instead, he's played 25 games. He lost his starting job after four games and demanded a trade a couple of weeks ago. And really, on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, I wasn't entirely sure why the Kings signed Rashawn Holmes when they had someone in Marvin Bagley who was a very similar player who was going to be far more of an important part of their future. And instead, Rashawn Holmes has been pretty indisputably the Kings' best player so far this year. He's been an absolute revelation and a total joy to watch. And... (laughs) I will say the one contract for the Kings that I did get right this season is that I've been excoriating the Trevor Ariza signing since (laughs) it happened. And he had probably his two best games of the year in his last two games, but Luke Walton still plays Trevor Ariza like he's 2009 Luke Walton teammate version of Trevor Ariza. And that is really not a fun part of watching the Kings so far this year. Yeah, unfortunately, he's one of these veteran wings who wants to be on a, a winning team, but isn't and isn't interested in really mentoring these guys or setting an example of how to play hard and effective when he's on the court. So that, that that's been pretty brutal that, uh, that, that, that he has not worked out and that they've uh, really been unable to find that, that stretch for that, that wing um, veteran presence. It's almost ridiculous to say this, but I do believe it a little bit more than it would seem like I should. The New Orleans Pelicans are currently the 14th seed at 14 and 26. But if Zion Williamson comes back in the next week and a half or so, I think they might actually be the team that has the best shot of claiming the eighth seed. They've played so much better with Derek Favors healthy than they had with him out. And Even early in the season where they weren't playing well with him, Favors wasn't all the way healthy. And the last couple weeks when he has been able to get on the court, they've been so much better on the defensive end of the floor that it's almost incomprehensible. And something that both of us have been saying earlier this season, and certainly you've been saying sort of consistently throughout the power rankings, is that I was expecting this team to be a lot better on the defensive end of the floor. And they've been one of the worst defenses in basketball through the first half of the season. But they've been really solid on the defensive end with Derek Favors playing and just abysmal with him out. So if Favors can stay healthy and Zion can get back on the court soon, this team might really have a solid shot at making the playoffs. Yeah, and Favors has really been the linchpin for what they want to do defensively. And early in the season, he he battled a couple injuries and the devastating loss of his mom. Um, So... Recently, it looks like he's kind of been able to wrap his head around basketball again after a really awful start to the season. Um, And he just continues to show how important he is for their interior defense because shocker, Jaleel Okafor is not good and Nicolo Melli is not a good defender. Wait, really? I know. I hate to break it to you. Jaleel Okafor isn't a solid defensive player? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that, that he was not worth the number two pick. So we better call the fire brigade to, you know, put out your microphone seeing as it's caught on fire after that take. I know. I'm sorry for these hot takes here, but, uh, and, and Jackson Hayes is a rookie and rookies generally aren't good defenders. And just at the start of the season, Hayes wasn't a good defender. He was all over the place, but he looks more and more comfortable um, and has been a nice rim protector for them. But it all revolves around Derek Favors. And when he's healthy and and invested in the team, um, as he has been lately, their defense is so much better. And I, I hope that he can continue to stay healthy going forward um, because this team has been a lot of fun. Uh, Brandon Ingram has been really, really good this year. Um, they've The advanced numbers actually say that they're kind of a worse team with him on the floor, but uh, there, there are other things to go into that. Um, but if Zion comes back and stays healthy, um, the, this team sliding into that A spot wouldn't surprise me in the, in, in the slightest. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk briefly about the proposed playoff play-in tournament, given that 
the conceit of this podcast was talking about the playoff bubble and especially teams seven through 10, which would be the competitors in this proposed play in tournament. So I talked about it a lot last week with Kevin, so I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that tournament. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, I mean, the, the thing that everyone always or keeps going back to is that Timberwolves Nuggets game from a couple of years ago where it was winner makes playoffs and that game was one of the best games of the year. Um, I, I think it'd be a ton of fun to watch. I think it'd be interesting. I'm not sure I love it though. Um, there, I just have issues with like when you look at the teams this year, I mean, in the West, it kind of makes sense because they're all, you know, right there with each other. But I mean, when you look at like, I don't want to see the 11 seed Pistons, you know, win a fluke game and sneak into the playoffs this year. They're awful. So I think it would just result in, you know, it, not that it would, but it could easily result in some really, really garbage teams getting into the playoffs and then people just complaining about how the first round is still too long when we have all these blowout sweeps and that it doesn't matter. And I, I think there are some issues with the lottery. Um, and the draft position where if, you know, one of those 11, 12 seeds does somehow, you know, win that playing game and they get into the playoffs, um, I, from what I've heard is that they still keep that lottery pick. So making the playoffs and then getting that lottery pick, um, while that six seed falls out and then keeps their pick, um, I, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. I, I get the money-making aspects of it. I get the viewership aspects of it. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun. Just I, I, I'm not sure how feasible it is or how much it technically makes sense. I think the Nuggets-Timberwolves point you made earlier is a fantastic one. And the two sort of similar but different points that I had last week regarding this tournament were the seventh seed Grizzlies a couple of years ago where they ended up 42 and 40, but they had injuries to basically every major player and were just demolished when they finally made it to the playoffs. And then the other example being the 41, 41 Miami heat team from a couple of years ago that started 11 30 and ended 30 and 11. I think the play in tournament kind of allows for teams like that, that, had a little bit of trouble early on in the season, but are really clicking by the end of the year. It gives those teams a chance to make the playoffs, which I think makes those beginning matchups a little bit more interesting. And it's not like we don't have terrible eight seeds in the playoffs pretty much every year anyway. It would just be terrible 10th seeds instead. So, you know, I get that it does allow for teams that are pretty rough to make it into the first round of the playoffs, but I don't know. It might be interesting and it certainly allows for teams that get better over the course of the season to have a chance to sort of revive their year. Whereas if you're the 11 and 30 Miami Heat and you just barely don't make it all the way back in your last half of the season push for the playoffs, it does reward those teams in a way that I think could be really interesting. Completely makes sense. I I, I get the intrigue. I'm not you know, vehemently opposed to this idea. I just, I don't know. I, I have some issues with it and I, I don't think it's a perfect proposal. Um, I, I think there are better things out there where if, if we're just going to negate the value of the entire regular, regular season, then, you know, what's the point if I'm a better team, why would I not just, you know, tank a couple games to get down to that, you know, 10, 11 seed, get a better draft pick and then just beat, you know, a worse team that slid up into that spot. So, and there'd be a lot of standing manipulation, I think, going on, which, you know, could, could be interesting, create a lot of content, fun stuff for us to talk about. Um, but I, I just have some some technical issues with, with, with how it would all play out. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Um, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, I should have a... Devonte Graham piece coming out in the next week or so, and then in the next week or two, uh, version two of the big board for the draft will be coming out. Um, should be a full top sixty. Awesome. Well, we will definitely have to discuss that draft top sixty when it gets around to it. 
But in the meantime, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on the hashtag basketball website. Be on the lookout for that Devontae Graham article. Be on the lookout for that top 60. And of course, Tyler is one of my fellow power rankers. So be on the lookout for his blurbs on the power rankings as well. You can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11, T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback for me, feel free to reach out either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.